Welcome to the DTB podcast for November 2018, volume 56, number 11. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, uh, DTB editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month considers the challenge of supporting people with multiple long-term conditions. But what in particular do we look at in this editorial? So this is um, an editorial by Julian, one of our associate editors, and he's looked at how should we be managing multiple morbidity patients who have got perhaps diabetes and Parkinson's and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease the moment they go to individual clinics and perhaps spend many hours in GP surgeries looking at things individually and he looked at a published research article entitled the 3D approach and this is a way where actually you try and make sure that all the care that a patient needs is all coordinated into a single action with the idea that you get better take-up, you get uh, uh, better outcomes. And he looks at that, and, and the conclusion, unfortunately, from that study was that actually there were no better outcomes in that group, apart from one area which I thought was quite important, which was actual patient satisfaction. You know, patients appreciate not having to go to multiple clinics. So just drilling into the detail a bit more, what did they offer in the way of the intervention? What was it that patients were, instead of turning up for your appointments, throughout the year what was it this particular study offered them so they they had got a team together of nurses pharmacists gps and it was a coordinated approach so that you might go once and have some parameters measured with uh, healthcare assistance your blood's taken uh, lung function done and then you know as part of that same thing you'd then have your doctor or your pharmacist reviewing your medication so it was a it was a complete one-stop shop if you like looking i mean the 3d uh, if you like, looks at the three dimensions. So it looks at your health, depression or mental health and drugs. And that was sort of the, the focus of this study, to look at all those three aspects rather than just focusing on the disease. So all credit to them for publishing what at the moment looks like a a negative outcome in terms of it was no different from, from routine care. But what do we, how do we interpret that? Well, of course, the way I interpreted it was that isn't bog standard general practice actually still pretty good and therefore you know it may well be that the reason why they couldn't demonstrate any benefit over standard care was standard care was was okay Uh, i suspect it may simply be a case of this was not a you know long trial and i think when you're dealing with multiple morbidities i suspect you've got to look at the five ten year picture before you get a good view of what's really going on so a valuable introduction to assessing the evidence for this topic but we need more Absolutely. And I think, of course, this is a, comes at a crucial time with the NHS struggling with knowing how is it going to deal with this comorbidity bulge. And I think that uh, Julian's editorial has a very balanced look at that. OK, thank you very much. And our first main article discusses some of the issues facing travellers who need to take their medicines abroad. This is one from your own pen, so tell, tell us about it. Yeah, so this was uh, something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And it was really to to really tie up the issues legal, both nationally and internationally, on taking prescription medicines abroad. And I really wanted to try and create a comprehensive article that would allow GPs and indeed patients who might be planning to travel to really understand the issues behind the laws, both in the UK and also 
at uh, at your destination, if you like. And I think that was the if there's one fundamental thing that I learned from this was that there are always at least two sets of laws you need to look at. You need to look at the law of the UK where you're leaving and you need to look at the law of the country where you're arriving. And that's where people go and miss sometimes. I think they look at the rules for the UK and think, well, that's it. I've, I've done that. And then they fall foul when they get to the destination. And I think it, it can be very complicated. You know, the trouble is it's, there's not one single international set of rules. But we go into detail about really how you can go about making sure you don't fall foul of any of these. So it's particularly important when it comes to controlled drugs. And even that is difficult to define. We may understand what we mean by controlled drugs in the UK. But when it comes to other countries, their definitions are far different. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, for most of us, we think we understand what we mean by controlled drugs. And certainly in the UK, it's very clear packaging is labelled, but that may bear no relationship to the controlled drug uh, system in another country. And other drugs which are completely easy to get hold of here, you can buy them over the counter, things like pseudoephedrine you might use for your cold. In Japan, that's heavily restricted and you'd probably have that taken off you at the airport if you try to enter the country with it. So it is an incredible minefield where you really have to be very clear and try and make sure that you contact the country where you're going and get full information from them. Some countries, I have to say, are really good. Places like Australia and Japan, even though they're quite restrictive, actually have very clear guidelines on the web and they also respond to emails remarkably fast. Other countries, I have to say, are, I spent some time trying to find out details and got absolutely nowhere. So it is. It, I appreciate that it can be a real minefield. And although, and we highlight some of these databases and publications that list some of the restrictions, but they may easily go out of date quickly, and it's always worth checking. But probably the bottom line is leave yourself plenty of time. Absolutely. I mean, for example, for Japan, you have to post your application to Japan, and I think they suggest you take six weeks to allow that to be processed and come back. So, yes, you, you need to be thinking ahead. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month is a new type for DTB. Uh, we've joined forces with BMJ Case Reports to highlight articles or cases that may be of general interest to, to our readers. So what's the one we focus on this month? Yes, yeah, so this is a case report regarding spontaneous splenic rupture in a 77-year-old woman who was uh, on river roxaban uh, because of atrial fibrillation. And I believe this has now been about five cases associated with this. So I th we thought it was quite an important issue. Uh, obviously, many of us are now using DOACs routinely in our clinical practice, and I thought it was quite useful to be aware of, of this possible issue. And this is a theme that we'll come back to in conjunction with BMJ case reports, where there are areas of interest or, or overlap would bring them to people's attention. Absolutely. I think it's, it's a very valuable, and I, I actually have to say I, I like the narrative of case reports. I enjoy reading them. So I think, I think it can be really helpful uh, for clinicians to, to see what else is going on. Okay, thank you very much. And finally, last month we reviewed our article on the use of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain and just use this as an opportunity to again flag up the video that accompanies this article in which, James, you talk to a patient who's been a long-term user of, of chronic opioids. What was his story? Yeah, so this was a patient who uh, had chronic pain and had done all the right things. He'd been to see his GP. His GP had referred him to a pain clinic. And over the years, he just ended up on higher and higher doses of opioids. 
And, you know, it's something which just quietly happens without anyone perhaps being aware until until you suddenly clock just the amount of dosage that, that he was taking. So he actually went through and had some further operative procedures, including having um, a spinal stimulation implant put in and came off his opioids. And he tells very powerfully the story around that and how things are now for him. And of course, I think it just highlights how we are in a situation now where we do have patients on high doses of opioids for chronic pain. And we now recognise, and this is what the article covered, that many patients in that situation are not benefiting and we need to be looking at ways to reduce their opioid load to really basically improve their, their outcome. So the video not only has our patient talking about his flexions and his experience of being on long-term opioids, but Dr. Kathy Stannard gives her view from a pain clinic uh, specialist, and I add my sort of view from a GP perspective. So I think it's a very useful, balanced video. It's only about four minutes long. And of course, it's linked to Dr. Kathy Stannard's article, Where Now for Opioids in Chronic Pain. Okay, thank you very much. To watch the video or to read any of our content, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com. The video and the article associated with it are both free to view and free to read. Thank you very much.